River West Church, so good to see you. While you're getting settled there, I'm up here inviting you to pull out your Bible with me. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle now and you will receive a Bible. And when you get that Bible, open it up and turn, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians today. We're not going to Luke this morning yet. If you've been around our church, you know we've been in a series in the Gospel of Luke. And it's been an incredible series. We come back to that series in two Sundays, so right after Connect Sunday. But this morning, we're going to do something unique, okay? It's the first Sunday of 2020. And I have a word this morning of vision for our church. A word of vision and a word of challenge, This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to work through a passage that functions in the New Testament, something like a compass for the church. It gives the the community of Jesus our our true north. And so it it just seems it's it's the first Sunday of of a new year, not only a new year, but a new decade. And it, it seemed fitting that we would launch into this new year by going to a passage that helps us have a standard to understand who are we going to be? The analogy I want to use today is the analogy of a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is or a plumb bob? If you've ever done any building, I've got a picture of this. I'm just going to dive right into this analogy and show you. That is like an ancient level. It goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. The Egyptians would use a plumb line, a plumb bob. It was a heavy metal object with a point, and they would hang it, and it allowed them, they would hang it, and it would... They would hang it on a wall and it would allow them to see, is this wall true? Is it right? Is it square? And so that plumb line functioned like a, like a standard that they would use. And the question that I've been asking over the last few months is, is there a passage in the New Testament where the church could go to find a standard for who we're called to be as God's community? And the answer is There absolutely is. That passage is 2 Corinthians. We'll spend our time today. In particular, we're going to focus on six words that the Apostle Paul wrote that I believe draw the people of God into the very heart of God for his church. What is the church supposed to be about? What what drives the church? What's the explanation for who we are, for what we do, and for how we do it? The passage we're going to look at this morning is going to help us understand that. So if you're newish to River West and you're, 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 you're still feeling like you're getting your bearings here, here's my hope for you. This morning, my hope is by the time this sermon is over, you will be totally in with us. You'll be so convinced that you want to be a part of what God's doing through River West Church. Amen? Amen? If you're a visitor or you're checking out Christianity, here's my hope for you. My hope for you is that by the end of this sermon, you will have been let in sort of behind the curtain to understand what is the heart of Christianity? What is it that drives Christians? Perhaps you've wondered that and you've you've gotten versions of it out there in the world and the media, but what if there was something deeper, something more concrete, something more real? My hope for you is you'd you'd be so compelled today, you'd leave going, I I actually want to be a part of this Christian thing. And if you're with us, if you're a member, if you've been with us for a long time, my hope for you is just that you would get renewed and inspired. You'd have renewed vision and conviction about who God is and what he's called us to do. 
as a church. Does that sound lofty? Does that sound impossible? Does that sound good? Should we do it together? Okay, where would you go? Where, where would you go in the New Testament to find a passage that would accomplish all those things? We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Will you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 to 21. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll break it down into bite-sized pieces. Here's what Paul said. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. That phrase, uh, beside ourselves, basically means in its... Paul's way of saying if we're out of our minds, it was a way of describing people who are crazy. So if you've ever thought Christians seem really crazy, well, it's biblical. It's right there in the Bible, okay? (laughs) If we're crazy, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Just underline that. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. I'm going to explain what that means, according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him that way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representative, somebody who who is here on behalf of someone else, a ruler, someone powerful, a king. What a privilege, what an honor to function in the world, to live in this world as a representative for someone else who's vastly more important than I am. Paul says, that's who we are, we're ambassadors. But for who? For Christ, Paul says. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Isn't that beautiful? You know, sometimes when you're reading through the Bible, you'll come to certain texts where you feel as as if the author has cracked open their heart and allowed you to come in to see a little bit of something about what drives them. All, all verses in the Bible are important, but sometimes you'll come to some verses, and as you're reading it, you're realizing, I've come to something incredibly significant. I feel as if Paul is saying, let me bring you in behind the curtain. I want to show you what's driving me. Why it is that I spend my life the way I do. What is, the, what is the force that's at work in me? Why, why is it that I'm so focused with my time? And not just focused, but driven. Have you ever been around somebody who's incredibly driven and also incredibly focused? The most driven person I've ever met was my, my very first 
spiritual mentor when I was a young man. His name was Eric Schofield. He was my youth pastor and he's a dear friend. And I've talked about him before. And Eric Schofield was the most razor sharp, focused person I've ever met. He, it was as if he, he woke up every day believing God's going to do something today and I'm, I'm going to get to be a part of it. He would walk into every encounter, every conversation, every situation, believing God's doing something in this. And I'm supposed to be looking for that. I remember Schofield would call me up and he would say, hey, Adam, what are you doing today? And I would say, nothing. I'm 15, I can't drive, I'm a loser. I'm not doing anything, okay? And, and he would say, I'm going grocery shopping, come with me. And that was gonna really help my street cred to go grocery shopping with my youth pastor. But anyway, he'd call me up and he'd say, come, and because he, this sounds odd, but Schofield would never even just go to the grocery store and not use that moment for the kingdom of God. So he would drag along this 15-year-old loser (laughs) to go grocery shopping with him. It was amazing. I remember one time my brother and my twin brother and I were were with Schofield driving somewhere, and we we made the mistake of of admitting to Sco that we had never told each other that we love each other, okay? And he honed in on that. I was like, we should have not told him that, Aaron, right? He's like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You guys have never said I love you to each other? And we said, no, brothers don't do that. It's weird. And he's like, he was always looking for a way to bring, he was like, we are not getting out of this car until you guys look each other in the eye and say, I love you. You're my brother. Oh my gosh, it was the worst moment of my life, right? Okay, he was driven. I bet... People who are around Paul were constantly asking the question, what is driving this person? And Paul would say, it's simple. The love of Christ controls us. The most amazing six words for the church in the New Testament. Will you look at it in your Bible? The love of Christ controls us. Paul was so captivated by the love of Christ that it dictated everything about his life. It was the motivating force for every decision. It was the lens through which Paul saw his very existence on the earth. It was Paul's true north. It was his plumb line. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I have to ask you a question this morning. Whose love controls you? Whose love controls you? Now, I'm being, I'm being serious. I'm going to ask you to think about this today. Whose love is motivating you? What is the compulsion in your life that drives you? Because, because there's a lot of counterfeits out there. I, I've often thought this question, every pastor should, if, if, if the pastor has any conscience at all, should be haunted by this question. And I'm being like most sincere right now. Because in the ministry, there's so many temptations. The, the, the pastor, the ministry leader, the missionary should constantly be asking the question, whose love controls me? But not just pastors, not just leaders, not just missionaries. Every single Christian, I believe, that question should be rattling around in our hearts constantly. 
because there's so many counterfeits out there, so many temptations. I call them counterfeit compulsions, right? And you could even, as you're hearing this, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, what's driving me in my life? What is the thing that's pressing me forward? I made a list of, of, of some counterfeits. I'm going to put this up and just this, just, this list could be endless. But here I think are some of the most common, and maybe you'll find you on this list, okay? The adoration of the crowd. The love of the crowd compels a lot of people in ministry, in a lot of different, we've already talked about that, but there's others. Guilt from your past. You know, guilt is an unbelievable motivator, isn't it? Past guilt, oh, my past, I'm, and, and it, it can drive you to be so driven, so focused. But the problem is guilt is a tyrant. Yes, it can be motivating, but it will suck the life out of you. It will leave you dead. Desire for prominence or success or wealth or power or you know, fill in the blank. A longing to earn God's approval. You say, God, I, have you ever slow down and go, yeah, I'm constantly trying to win God's approval. But wait a minute, as a Christian who understands the gospel, do I have to earn God's, hasn't God already demonstrated through Christ that he loves me, that I'm approved, that I'm accepted? Amen. And yet we were driven by that, aren't we? Amazing. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to consider this question with me. Whose love is really controlling you? Now, Perhaps you don't like the word control, and I get that. I want to be, that word control for some people, it kind of lands with a lot of tenderness. Maybe you were in a relationship that was really controlling, and you, when you hear control, and actually, I'm going to move away from that word control right now because I'm not even positive that the word control is the best translation in here. The, the Greek word is really hard to translate with one English word. And so what'll happen is, as you open different English Bibles, you'll see different kinds of words that are used to capture this one Greek word. So in the ESV, it's control, but here's how the, here's how the NIV says it. Some of you have an NIV. It says, for Christ's love compels us. It's compelling. Controlling sounds restrictive, but compelling sounds like I'm being moved forward by something. Or the King James Version says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. <laughs> right? Constraineth. It's this beautiful word. Or the New Revised Standard Version, for the love of Christ urges us on. The New American Bible, the love of Christ impels us. Or J.B. Phillips, the very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. It's this It's this compelling, impelling, pressing, guiding. In the Greek, the word means to be pressed in on both sides. It's, it's, it's like this, these boundaries that keep you from wandering one way or the other, but the boundaries also press you forward to live your life on mission, and it's beautiful and it's powerful. The illustration that I thought of is, you know when a river comes to a place where you have steep, rock walls on either side and the water is forced into a tighter channel. Like at the top of Multnomah Falls, imagine there you are, you've hiked up to the top of Multnomah Falls, New Year's resolution, and there you are and you're looking and the water comes to this place where rock walls force the water together and the, and the water gets deeper and more powerful and then it shoots out over 
the fall. This is the image that Paul's using. This compelling force in your life that drives you. And so, brothers and sisters, now wait a minute. It's the first Sunday of 2020. And I believe God actually has a vision for our church. And the vision is this, to lock into this idea as a community, as individuals, yes, but as a community, God would say, I want you to make this the very heartbeat of your church. The people in Lake Oswego would say, what is driving them? What is compelling them? What is the explanation for the way these people treat us, the way they navigate life in this world? That we would, with one voice, say, the love of Christ compels us. We've been so compelled by his love. As a church, but also you in your individual neighborhood, in your sphere of influence, at work, wherever you go, I believe God is saying, this is the vision. It's been the, the heartbeat of River West Church. And God says, let's renew our vision and our conviction. Amen? Amen. And so the question I have for you is, what does it look like as a community to be compelled by the love of Christ? What would that kind of church look like? Well, Paul gives us three things, three sort of, three sort of markers. And I'm going to this is going to be the, the framework we'll use here for the next 10 minutes together. Um, and so you can write these down. And these are from the passage. I'm going to show you these are from the passage. Three things the love of Christ gives a community. Number one, motivation to live sacrificially. Number two, discernment or wisdom, spiritual insight, okay, to see people the way that Christ sees people. And number three, courage to stay on mission. And Paul would say all of those are traced back to the love. Of, it's the love of Christ that drives people to this, the motivation to be sacrificial, to wisdom to see people the way Christ sees them and, and courage to stay on mission. All of it is rooted in the love of Christ. So let's work through these together. We begin with motivation to live sacrificially. It's right there. Did you see it in verses 14 and 15? 14b to be specific, in verse 15, look at your own Bible. Paul, Paul uses some, lang some logic language here. And when, you're, when you read over it quickly, the logic seems really straightforward. But what I'm going to suggest to you is if we slow down right now and really pay attention, we're going to scratch our heads for a minute. Because what Paul says is actually a little bit confusing. He says, 14b, because we have concluded this. That's logic talk. We've come to a conclusion. What's the conclusion? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And right when you read that, you should scratch your head and say, what? Wait a minute. I thought the purpose of the sacrificial death of Christ in my place as my substitute was for the purpose that I wasn't supposed to die or have to die. But now Paul's saying, here's what we've concluded, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And the reader's thinking, wait a minute, which is it, Paul? Do we live or do we die? And Paul says, well, it's kind of both. 
And the answer is in verse 15. So look at verse 15. What Paul does is he now describes in verse 15 a group of people who are alive, but they're alive in a new way. They're alive in a way where they are freed from from self-centeredness because somehow they have participated with Christ in his death. Amazing. Do you see it? Verse 15. Here's why he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says, I'm envisioning a people who are now alive. They're alive in a new way. And the reason they're alive in this new way is because they they participated somehow with Christ in his sacrificial death. And it has allowed them to spring to new life, a life that's no longer focused on self. Reminds me when Paul said in Galatians 2.20, Remember this, he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, which is ironic because he was alive when he was saying it. (laughs) I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and died for me. So it's this way of seeing our Christianity as we, we participate in Christ's death and then his resurrection and it frees us to to live for others. It's amazing. Paul's purpose in this, my friends, was he, was he wanted to captivate you so that you could be freed from self-centeredness. To be captivated, to go, wait a minute, Christ died for me. What I love about Paul was Paul never got tired of thinking back on his salvation. He never lost that, that joy, that sense of ah. Jesus died for me. Incredible. He always had that with him, and it was a powerful motivator. I imagine what it would be like. Have you ever played the game where people say, if you could go back to any point in human history and live one day anywhere in human history, where would you go? Have you ever played this game? And my answer to that is always the same. I would go back to the day of the cross. And I would, I would want to stand there with the crowd And I would want to look at Jesus. And I would want to see the look in his eyes. And what if you were there? I mean, imagine being there. There you are. You're standing there. You're looking up and you know this person is divine. And what if Christ were to make eye contact with you? And you were to see love in his eyes. Incredible. It would take... Be like constantly living with that sense where your breath has just been taken away. That's how Paul lived his life, captivated. So if you lost that, one way to get it back is meditate on verse 21, which I'm going to show you now. It's at the end, but what Paul does in verse 21, which I'll put on the screen is he says, let me explain to you the meaning of the cross. I've thought about this verse for 25 years of my Christian life. It's so rich. For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, let me explain to you the sacrifice of Jesus. There is, on the cross, there's this, there's this exchange that happens. Martin Luther called it the great exchange where everything that belongs to Christ gets transferred to you and I and everything that ultimately belongs to us somehow gets transferred to Christ, the one who was truly not sinless. Amazing. This week, 
when I was studying that and I was reading Martin Luther, I, I learned something I'd never seen about this verse. This verse, the logic of it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to a story that maybe you're familiar with. In the Old Testament, there's a story in Genesis 48 of Jacob, when he's at the end of his life, he's sort of the patriarch of Israel. He, Joseph, his son, brings to Jacob, Joseph brings his two sons, okay? And he brings the older son and the younger son, and it was a tradition where kind of the patriarch of the family would lay hands on the, on the children and bless them. And so Joseph brings him his, his, his older son, Manasseh, who gets, who's supposed to get the blessing of the firstborn. So he sets Manasseh on Jacob's right knee. And then he brings the younger son, Ephraim, who's the younger son who's supposed to get the blessings of the younger son. And he places Ephraim on Jacob's left knee so that Jacob would place his right hand on Manasseh and bless him with all of the rights, privileges of the older, and he would place his left hand on Ephraim. And Jacob, in that moment, takes out his right hand and he crosses his hands and he lays his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older son. And Joseph is freaking out. And he's like, dad, you've got it wrong. Manus is the older. And Jacob's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm trying to show you a picture of the Messiah. Because at the cross, God crossed his hands. And everything that was rightfully Christ as our older brother was transferred to us, the younger brother, righteousness and blessing and forgiveness, the adoration of God, holiness to be called God's beloved. And everything that was ours was transferred to our older brother, Jesus Christ, who bore away our sin and condemnation. Amazing. And you hear it and it's supposed to go, and then you realize, why would I live for myself? How could I possibly live for myself in this world? It frees you up from the bondage of every day waking up, thinking about self, and that's what it's supposed to do. It's as if Paul said, I, I took out my checkbook and I wrote God a blank, the blank check of my life. I said, here's my, I signed it over to God and I left the amount blank. Now, I just lost everyone under the age of 30, all right? Because you're like, blank check, what are you talking about? Venmo, I Venmo, there's no blank Venmo. What is paper? What are we talking about? But think about this. You're taking your life and you're saying, someone died for me and now I am alive in a new way and I, I'm giving God the blank check. God, you fill in the amount. Amazing. Motivation to live sacrificially. That's number one. Here's number two. Wisdom to see people the way Christ sees them. I love this so much. If, if I could change one thing about the church in America in the decade to come, this is what I would change. The way that we see people. People out there. If there's one thing I, I, I would change, oh, I, I, I wish that the church could somehow get transferred up into the heart and the mind of God so that we could begin to see people the way that Christ sees people. Amen? Oh, how, that, how beautiful that would be. When Paul says in verse 16, did you, in verse 16 there, did you see it? He says, from now on, we, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. 
what he's saying there is he's saying we no longer see people according to the normal categories, worldly categories, worldly ways of thinking. In our world, we're constantly categorizing people. We're lumping them. We're putting them into columns constantly over and over. Paul says, we don't do that anymore because of Jesus. When we see people, we no longer see rich or poor, educated or uneducated, conservative or progressive, young or old, powerful or weak, white collar or blue collar. All those categories go away in Christ. Paul says, we don't see people any longer the way the world sees them. I have a, I have a great illustration of this that was really lighthearted. A couple of years ago, I was in a coffee shop working on my sermon, and a man came in to order his coffee, and he was wearing a T-shirt, and on the back of the shirt was one of the single greatest things I've ever seen. And so I totally got creepy. I pulled out a piece of paper and I walked up behind him and I started writing down what was on his shirt. You know, and he's looking back like, what is going on here? But I wrote it down and here's, here's what it said. Love this. It said, heaven is where the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, the police are British, and it's all organized by the Swiss. <laughs> Doesn't that sound good? But that's, that was only the first half of the poem. Here's the second half of the poem. Hell is where the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, the police are German, and it's all organized by the Italians. Okay, there you go. All right? Because we categorize people. Young and old, in touch, out of touch, woke, unwoke. I mean, you name it. We're always categorizing people. Last month, I was sitting at the table with my, my college-age daughter, and I said something out of touch because I'm old. I'm getting old, right? I said something out of touch, and sh she said to me something I'd never heard before. This is new. All the young people are going to immediately know this when, I, when they hear it. She went, okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. Have you heard that? Okay, boomer. It's the way for the young people to be derogatory to the old people. Okay, boomer. And I was like, Lauren, I'm Gen X, all right? I'm not even a boomer. And she's like, whatever, boomer. You just proved it. I'm like, what? But Paul saw people in only two categories, in Christ and not yet in Christ. And Paul said, that's all that matters. In Christ and not yet in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is in Christ, Paul's saying the possibility is always there and you should believe it. And if they are in Christ, everything about their life changes. They become a new creation. Their past is gone. Amazing. I used to say, when I was younger, I used to say, that person would make a really great Christian. And you know what? I never say that anymore. Because when we say that, think about what we're saying. We're looking at a person saying, they have all these traits that would make them a great Christian. When we usually mean they're noble, they're moral, they're honest, they're whatever. We have traits that we assume as if God, I'm telling you, God did not look at me and say, that guy would make a great Christian. I've got a lot to work with there. God looked at me and said, he's wicked and self-centered and he needs Jesus. And so God made me a Christian. Amen.
Amen. So what I want you to do is actually flip it upside down and start making a list of the people where you're like, there's no way this person could ever be a Christian. And that's exactly the person that Jesus wants to save. What would it be like? It's a new decade. It's a new year. Every one of us made a list of people who are not yet in Christ. And we began to believe I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a moment. But first, we have one more to do. So we're getting motivation to live sacrificially. We're getting wisdom to see people the way Christ sees them. And finally, courage to stay on mission. I predict, and my heart is sad with what I'm about to say. I predict that in the decade to come, Many churches in America and in our world are going to, ex- it's going to take incredible courage for churches to stay on mission. And it breaks my heart to say this because the reality is the mission that God has given the church is not popular and it's going to get increasingly less and less popular. And churches will face unbelievable pressure to wander away from the actual mission. And it breaks my heart because what will happen is the light of the gospel in those churches will flicker and eventually fade. And so I'm, I'm asking you this morning, do you know what the mission of the church is? This question's kind of rhetorical. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I, what I want you to do is let it rattle for just a second. I'm going to let it hover over there. Do you actually, if, if you got on an elevator and somebody got on with you and said, what's the mission of the church? And you had two floors. Could you articulate it? There are all these seminal places in the New Testament where we get the mission of the church. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, he's about to be ascended into heaven. He's the risen Lord. He gathers his first community of believers, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching. And then Jesus said, and Behold, I will be with you. That's why we call it the co-mission, right? Because we're with, this isn't, the, this isn't people going out and doing something that God's not told them to do. This is God with a mission, his mediator, Christ, who died for sin, rose again in power, then turning to his first community and saying, now you go and continue what I came, my mission, go make disciples of all nations. Or, 2 Corinthians 5.18. We look at it. It was right there. Look at this. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There it is. What is the mission of the church? The ministry of reconciliation. Paul says it again two more times. God, through us, through our lips, through our ministries, imploring people, be reconciled to God. That's the mission. Brothers and sisters, the church, our church and other churches in our community, we have been entrusted with the most important, focused 
singular mission in the entire world. Unbelievable. I'll spend the rest of my life wondering, God, why did you entrust this to us? When I was in college, I read a book called The Church and God's Program by an author named Sasi. And in the very first chapter, he said, the church is God's plan A, and there's no plan B. <laughs> there's no plan B. The church is it. You say, where in the world, where has God entrusted the ministry of telling every person who is not yet in Christ God has taken care of the sin problem. Be reconciled. Paul says, there's only one place where God has entrusted that mission. It's the church. And so let's, number one, let's not complicate what God has made simple. Amen. And let's, let's not, we're not going to go into mission drift. All right. So this means two things. The first, I'm going to talk about us. I'm going to talk about the pastors, the elders, the leaders. Here's what I want you to know, River West. As a leadership team, our primary focus at our church is God's ministry of reconciliation. Making You could use the word evangelism. Everything that we do, we're always asking the question, does this contribute to that primary Mission. Now, there are other things that we do that are important. Ministries of, of care, ministries out in, our, out in our world providing for people. All of those matter, but we're always asking the question, do, any, do all of those ministries contribute to this first primary ministry? And if they don't, we're not, we're not going to spend time on it. We don't have time. We cannot go into mission drift, Right? I love the way J.D. Greer said it. He was a pastor and, a, and, a, and, a, and an author. He said this, this is the most important mission in the world. All other ministries, all other missions fall apart. They fail if we don't accomplish this first mission. Helping people out of poverty, helping them get ahead, helping them get along, helping them be successful in life, in business, in relationships, helping them get educated, helping them to understand their Enneagram. All of these things are wonderful. They're necessary. But wait a minute. Apart from reconciliation to God, their benefits are short-lived. Amen? It doesn't matter if I give a cup of cold water to someone if I don't talk to them about their eternal need. It doesn't matter. This is the ministry God gave to the church. The church is his primary instrument of reconciliation. Churches make disciples of Jesus better than any other organization on the planet. It's the first Sunday of 2020. And so now what I'm saying, I'm saying to you, we can't do this without you. You're a part of this. When Paul said, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He was describing that moment where a person with their own lips turns to a friend and speaks the love of Jesus to them. It takes courage. And I'm standing before you as your pastor saying, I need you to be a part of this. I need you. You are a part of this. In your neighborhood, in your sphere, at your workplace, with your friends, this is your mission.
let the love of Christ compel you. Amen? I'm going to give you four things to do. Write these down. These are going to go fast. Four things. And you can't pick between these four. You have to do all of them this year in 2020. Okay? You can do all of these. Number one, do something intentional this year to grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ. You can actually grow it. You can appreciate it more. You can learn it. How would you do that? How, what, how, what could you do that's intentional? You could take the gospel class. We have this class that Pastor Christopher wrote. It's, it's a masterpiece. We'll have signups next week. Take the gospel class. Join a community group. It's 2020. What if you read the Bible this year? Read the Bible. About two months ago, I was sitting in my living room with my phone out, and I was scrolling through Instagram, and then I went to ESPN, and I checked out my soccer team and some transfer rumors stuff. 30 minutes went by. 30 minutes on, okay, it's kind of important, the soccer team. But anyway, there I was, and I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, I do this sometimes a couple times a day. And I was like, what if I took 20 of those minutes and I just read the Bible? I could read through the whole Bible in a year. I've done this in the past and it was super impactful. So I was like, Lord, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, 2020. I'm going to read through the Bible. I, I put this out on my Instagram and I was amazed how many people were like, I'm with you. I've never done this. I want to do this. How about you? Read the Bible. And don't just read the Bible to get more information. Read the Bible to learn how much Jesus loves you. Good? Do something to grow this year. Here's number two. Do something for Christ this year that will require sacrifice. Something will require personal sacrifice from you. Something that doesn't benefit you in any way. Something that will cost you. Maybe it's uh, serving Serving in our church, join a ministry team, open your home to a community group, open your home to your neighbors, have a, have a dinner where you invite people over, help make coffee, get on one of our ministry teams. We're, we're all over the city, all over the world. We're serving refugees, the, the, the homeless, the poor, the elder. We're doing things. Serve, do something this year to serve. Here's number three. Cultivate an intentional relationship this year. Even if it was just one, think about this. Cultivate a relationship with someone who's not yet in Christ. Good? That person, and, you, and you're like, there's no way that person would ever come to Christ. That's precisely the person that I, I want you to cultivate a relationship with. Amazing. My favorite story in the last two years in our church was the story of my friend Dave, who on New Year's Day 2018, so two years ago today, he was praying and he prayed the most beautiful childlike prayer I've ever heard. He sat in my office, he told me the story. He said, Adam, I realized I've never, got, I've never gotten to lead anyone to Christ. And it was so honest. And, and he was really emotional about it. He's like, I've, and I've always wanted to do that. And for some reason on New Year's Day, 2018, I got down on my knees and I just said, God, I would really love 
to be able to do that this year. Isn't that amazing? One month later, he's sitting in the chair of his eye doctor. This guy's life was falling apart. His wife had just committed suicide six months before. He was broken. And he, and he said to Dave, he was like, Dave, I've never met anyone like you. You are the craziest person I've ever met. You're out of your mind. And he was like, what drives you? What compels you? And Dave shared the gospel with him. He came to Christ. He, he worships in our church to this day. That's a great prayer to pray. Just pray, Lord, led by the Spirit. God, help me to create an intentional relationship this year. Can I tell you something? That is a prayer that God loves to answer. Amen? Amen. My friends, we're going to study Luke. And what you need to realize is where we are in Luke, what we're getting is we're getting a vision of Christ's heart for people. Think about this. In Luke... Christ has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's compelled and motivated to live a life of sacrifice, number one. Because why? Because he sees people the way God sees them. So he's going to tell all these parables, the parable of a lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of a lost coin, all of this teaching. Jesus sees people the way God sees them. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's never going to drift from his mission, which is to reconcile people to God. And what I'm telling you is we're studying, Luke, what if this was the year where you, through an intentional relationship, brought someone with you to church to sit at the feet of Jesus, see the heart of Jesus, learn the teaching of Jesus? Amazing. Amazing. I want to call you to it. And I just have one more thing I'm going to say, and this will be it. And I, I am saying this with absolute sincerity. I'm imploring you in the name of Christ to be reconciled to God today. Do it today. Do not wait. My friends, God loves you so much. He has gone to the ends of the world take away the sin problem. There's no boundary there. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Have you come in scared or resisting or feeling unworthy? God's wiped all of that away. There are no boundaries. You don't even have to do anything. All you have to do is allow God to continue to open your heart in faith to Jesus, to begin to worship him, to pray. And I'm going to pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this passage, this vision that you've left for us, inspired by the Spirit, recorded by the Apostle Paul, and saved for us in 2020 your church, your humble church here in Lake Oswego, may we be compelled by the love of Christ this year, Lord. That's our prayer. As a community and as individuals, and Lord, I'm praying for each and every person here today. I'm praying for those who love you, who are following you, God, that you'd give us renewed vision for our lives. I'm praying for those who are 
seeking or struggling or even resisting for some reason, God, please create hearts of faith in this moment. If that's, if that's you, God loves you so much. Just open your heart to him in these next few moments as we worship. He's taking care of everything. All you have to do is trust Jesus in this moment and thank God for Christ. And so we love you, Lord. We're so grateful to be your people. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. God bless you.